You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. As much as I'd quite like to keep grooving on with the music, um, everybody, thank you all for coming. Please make yourselves comfortable. If anybody actually wants a picnic rug, I've got one of those if you'd like to spread out in front. Um, so, as you know, seeing as you are all here, this event is an M Pavilion M Talk entitled Disability, Human Rights and the Built Environment. Thanks to you, of course, to M Pavilion for providing the opportunity to hold this event. So, as many of you already know, my name is Marianne Jackson. In the interest of in enhancing inclusion in presentation and events, for those unable to see me, I am of Anglo-Saxon <coughs> ancestry in my early 60s and have wavy, strawberry-blonde, shoulder-length hair tied back tonight. I wear dark tortoiseshell glasses. And in my work life, I'm a built environment accessibility specialist with qualifications and accreditations across architecture, sustainability and accessibility. I'm also the director of Visionary Design Development, the conveners of this event, Sonia Korshik, Visionary Design Development's Project Services Manager, and without whom most things that I apparently do would not get done. <laughs> um, Sonia and I had the idea for this event many months ago now, and it is with both relief and excitement that we are now here. So Will Scobie from Vision Design Development and volunteers from our in-house research unit VDD Studio are also here to provide support and assistance where needed. And a shout out also to our friend and colleague Nicole Mekaroff, who's also a fellow um, Architects for Peace alumnus. Nicole for catalyzing this ad hoc series of events, starting with the participatory urban aesthetic event we held last year as part of Melbourne Design Week. So, as you can see, this is a panel event. Our MC, Dr. Peter Raisbeck, will take you through the evening, acknowledgement of country, introduction of speakers, <coughs> etc. in a few minutes' time. My main task is housekeeping. There's accessible toilets up there and in the arts um, building. The COVID requirements, <coughs> you've all got your head around those. There's sanitizer <coughs> available from the M Pavilion staff, I presume, if, if yep, over there. Good. Um, in the unlikely event of the emergency, I presume the M Pavilion people will tell us what to do. So, and reflections on this event will be used for research purposes, um, for visionary design development and or my PhD, <coughs> and identifiable quotations and or commentary will not be used. If you would like to further contribute after the event, we have a QR code here that will take you through to a Google form. So there's a scan me and there's a couple of other um, QR codes around and the VDD volunteers have got um, QR codes on their phone. M Pavilion will be recording the event and using for their own PR marketing promotion purposes and Vision Design Development will also use imagery from the night on future social media. 
Some guests here this evening have personal privacy parameters, so please respect that and do not take pictures of specific people without their specific permission. General crowd shots are obviously okay. M Pavilion had intended to provide Auslan interpreters for this event, but have been unable to source any due to over-demand and undersupply. <coughs> so please consider take up Auslan. We need more interpreters. In the interest of being as, as inclusive as possible, um, we would love to hear from any of you about the best mobile phone solutions for speech to text. We've been trying to get our head around those sorts of solutions for uh, meetings and presentations. And talking about inclusion and thinking about where the built environment stops and technology begins, Bernadette, one of our panellists, has not been able to relocate to Melbourne, COVID complications. And as the space has not been designed to facilitate hybrid events in this pandemic era, Bernadette's contribution is pre-recorded. Although we do have Bernadette on Zoom, that's correct. Yep, so Bernadette's here in spirit. Anyway, enough from me. Peter, over to you. Thank you, Marianne. My name is Dr. Peter Raisbeck, Associate Professor of Architectural Practice at Melbourne School of Design, Melbourne University. I teach um, architectural practice, design activism, and another subject called Contemporary Architectural Archives. We acknowledge the elders and descendants of the Boonarung and Wurundjeri people who have been and are the custodians of these lands. We acknowledge that the land on which we meet was the place of age-old ceremonies of celebration, initiation and renewal, and that the local Aboriginal peoples have had and continue to have a unique role in the life of these lands and this country. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming along. I think human rights and the built environment is an incredibly fascinating and important um, topic. And I think the problem is too often as architects and speaking as an architect, we love to simplify things. So I think my interest in this particular topic is um, because of the possibilities that it has for the way that we design buildings and the possibilities that it has for um, research. So, our <coughs> wonderful panellists. We have Raylene West right over there, who is passionate about creating positive change in the community services area. Her particular research areas are disability and aged care support service frameworks. Raylene has experience in disability advocacy, academic work and administrative work. <coughs> she has a PhD in sociology, disability from the University of Melbourne and has been on numerous disability committees and was recipient of a 2014 scholarship where she completed a certificate for in training and assessment. She is currently working as a social researcher at the Public Service Research Group, University of New South Wales, Canberra, and at the Melbourne Disability Institute at the University of Melbourne. <coughs> Her research interests are ableism, individualised funding models, services and the market, technology use with services, and criti critical disability studies and human rights. On Zoom and on that tiny little phone over there, 
we have the incredible Bernadette Egan. Bernadette is a registered architect with over 20 years of extensive international experience on a diverse range of private and public sector projects. She has a Master's of Law in International and Comparative Disability Law and Policy and has conducted legal research for the Committee on the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. She is passionate about universal de design and believes that architects have a responsibility to provide an accessible built environment as a collective good that benefits all. She advocates that designing for diversity is simply designing for equality. She is currently researching <coughs> excuse me, an investigation into human rights, the built environment and architectural education, which is um, being co-supervised at Melbourne University with me and John Tobin and Anna Kerslake. Austin. Now, we also have Tim. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> and Tim has long believed architecture is not, unlike me, because I always thought it was about form until my old age, has long believed architecture is not about form, but formations of people. It's how we relate to architecture that really interests him. Having grown up in the shadow of Kanani in Hobart, Tim now lives and works on Wurundjeri land in Melbourne. An architect at Architecture and Access, he specialises in designing spaces for people with a disability. Tim graduated from Monash in 2016 and was awarded the RIAA Student Prize for the advancement of architecture in 2017. He's a cyclist and has a novel appreciation of flamingos <laughs> and a long time listener. And this is his first time being a first time speaker at M Pavilion. Thank you so much, Tim. Then we have the wonderful Yvonne Ming, who is an architect and a director of Circle Studio Architects. She is interested in human-centred design and how space can promote community and social well-being. Prior to co-founding her practice, she worked in several design practices and within local government. She regularly teaches design studios across Melbourne's architecture schools at both bachelor and master's level. And I know from experience that Yvonne is a fine design studio teacher. Yvonne is a PhD candidate at Melbourne University and her research investigates urban footpaths as an overlooked but significant public space which supports complex social systems and a wide variety of users. Not flamingos, <laughs> but she enjoys coffee, pottery and spoiling her two greyhounds. So thank you so much, everyone. And I think... Our first speaker from the panellists, each panellist will talk for, a, I think, five minutes or so, is Raylene. So I hand it over to you, Raylene. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Welcome to the land of the Wurundjeri people. My acknowledgement to elders past, present and emerging, their narrative and lived experience. There's stories and learnings that we get to share and encouragement for a positive future. 
I would also might like to make an acknowledgement to all the people with a disability who have lived in this now modern city of Melbourne, NAM. I acknowledge the pain and suffering and lack of opportunity for many of these individuals to develop as individuals, forced by a society who valued at that time requiring them to live in institutional buildings, buildings designed and built as places of exclusion and segregation away from society for those of physical and intellectual difference. Within Aboriginal culture, there is no definitive word for disability. My generation living in this modern world could gain understanding and learning from this past knowledge of there not being a word for an other. But instead, there is a place and a role for all in different ways within the wider group. In discussing the concepts of disability, the built environment and human rights for this talk today, I'm going to draw on a discussion that I had with somebody in recent weeks. We were discussing some cutting edge areas of design related to physical public spaces for people with sensory differences, such as autism, elements such as quiet rooms, reduced sound and noise areas and or passive lighting. During the conversation, she mentioned how everything moves so fast in the building industry that there was always new products and new elements and differing concepts that the industry was taking on board in terms of practice. When she mentioned this, I sort of stopped in my tracks. I questioned her, fast? Did you say fast? What do you mean by fast? From my perspective, everything is slow. How can you say fast? From my perspective, I'm sitting here waiting for these accessible housing standards to go through, which we've been waiting for since 2008. In about 2015, we were told they would go through, but that the environmental housing standards had to go first and that the housing industry could only take on so much change and new knowledge at once. It is taking so long for the accessible housing standards to go through that they are now not just a disability issue, but an aged care issue with wider and more extensive scale impact and urgency. What do you mean fast? From my perspective, it took us disability advocates so long to get the DDA, DDA access to premises standards through. The standards that link the building code with detail on how to build in terms of accessibility to reduce discrimination against people with a disability. We campaigned as advocates for years and only in 2010 did we finally get those standards through, even though the DDA Act was passed in 1992 in Australia. Fast. We then realised how weak the standards were in terms of dealing with existing buildings that still had bad inaccessibility. Good for future design and buildings about to be built, but what about those buildings still with a step? So despite a lot of campaigning, pretty much that fish and chip shop up the road has still got a step at its front entrance. And it's going to have a step at that front entrance for the next 25 years because there's nothing requiring them at any level of government to fix this step and put in a ramp. No new disability action plans or financial incentives no need for any time scale as to when access will be provided. None of that. Unless the building does a 50% modification, then they don't have to do accessibility. Just to put a ramp out the front entrance. And then, even with this, most of the time the owners get around having to do this, thanks, accessibility modification, by just claiming it's a refit anyway. So I continue to yell out my order from the footpath into the shop. Fast. In terms of international agreements, it took until 2008 for the United Nations to implement the Convention of Rights of People with a Disability, the CRPD. This was one of the last international conventions to go through for any marginalised group. Behind, the con sorry, behind conventions protecting people of colour, women, children and even the environment, which were implemented before the CRPD. 
The CRPD thankfully included Article 9 on accessibility provisions and requirements of states to make reasonable adjustments in a timely manner to create accessible environments for all people with a disability. Although Australia's domestic building legislation doesn't state that people with a disability have a human right to fully access the built environment, it just provides the technical detail. The CRPD does, and it clearly states that the state has an obligation in providing these human rights in a timely manner. Fast. So obviously the concept of time is relative. It is relative to what we know and the learnings we have and the lived experience of what we have seen and of what we can see needs for in moving forward. Certainly time for me in terms of accessibility to the built environment has been slow. Meetings and campaigns and researching and events, years and decades trying to highlight the need for change and the need for legislation and regulation to improve inaccessibility in our built environment. But to my friend, time related to the built environment was fast. Things changed quickly, there was innovation and movement, the industry flexed quickly with the flow of money and industry needs. So as I got my wheels going again after the comment that shocked me, I can only hope that this small talk that I'm giving to you today helps you move along some of your thinking and awareness and understanding of the need for universal access in relation to the built environment. As a field that should not perpetuate segregation and exclusion of times past, but that it should move along accessibility to the built environment in somewhat of a faster pace. Thanks. Thank you, Thank you so much, Raylene. And um, I note the <coughs> comments you make about time are very interesting for me, which we'll talk a bit about later. Now we have Bernadette, and it's a pity that Bernadette isn't here on such a glorious evening. So I understand we're going to hear, she has pre-recorded her talk and we will be able to hear that. Yes. Hello everyone, my name is Bernadette Egan and I am a registered architect and human rights advocate. I am delighted to be invited to this important and worthy discussion on disability, human rights and the built environment. Unfortunately, I cannot be with you in person today due to the coronavirus. Throughout my career, I, like other architects, designed the built environment to comply with the latest building codes and regulations, believing that everyone's human rights were protected. It all seemed to make sense, and as a busy architect, I didn't question it. Then one day my circumstances changed, and I gained a new perspective. I became one of the world's billion disabled people. What had made sense suddenly became nonsense. I discovered the hard way that the built environment is not adequately accessible at all. Life became a daily obstacle course as I faced difficulties with the activities of living that most people take for granted. Instead of being able to go about my daily business like everyone else, I had to confront a whole range of issues. Just a shop for food, visit a bank, have lunch in a restaurant, use a toilet, attend a meeting and socialize in a bar. I had lost my human rights and had become a second-class citizen. Will there be safe access to the building entrance door or just an out-of-order platform lift? Will there be adequate space to allow me to use the building or will it be too narrow for my wheelchair? Will I need to search for a key for the supposedly accessible toilet? And then will the door be too heavy and awkward to open? Will there be enough turning space inside for my wheelchair or will I need to jostle with waste bins? These are just a small sample of the questions about the accessibility of the built environment I tried to answer before leaving home as I need to mentally map out my day. 
The first accessibility building standard was introduced in the USA over 60 years ago and subsequently evolved into legal minimum design and construction standards worldwide. However, disabled people are still prevented from enjoying some of their fundamental human rights, such as the right to participate in society, live independently, seek employment, enjoy culture or leisure, as the built environment still excludes them today. As an architect, I feel let down and betrayed. How could this happen? Universal human rights apply to everyone, but not everyone can access their rights. Disability is part of humanity. The United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability, known as the UNCRPD, was adopted internationally well over a decade ago. It codifies the human rights model of disability and states that disability is an evolving concept, resulting from the interaction between people with long-term impairments and various attitudinal and environmental barriers that hinder their full and effective participation in society on an equal basis with others. The UN COPD marks a paradigm shift from disabled people being objects of charity, needing medical treatment and being kept on the margins of society, to being independent, having free and informed consent to make decisions about their own lives and participating successfully in the community. The UN COPD does not create new rights, but reaffirms that disabled people must be treated equally and enjoy all human rights and fundamental freedoms, including access to the built environment. When states ratified the UN COPD, they committed to translating its principles into policy and practice through progressive realization with the involvement of disabled people. Article 9 on accessibility is one of the fundamental core principles on which the UNCRPD is founded, as it is a precondition for disabled people to have freedom of movement to participate fully and equally in society. Four main challenges to the accessibility of the built environment have been identified. Societal attitudes, participation of disabled people, implementation and monitoring of accessibility standards, the training of relevant stakeholders, including built environment practitioners such as architects. The architect's social responsibility is a valuable tool in enhancing accessibility awareness in society, and usability by all people should become an integrated and standard component of a new paradigm for architecture. It is no longer acceptable that many people continue to be left out of society by exclusive building design that does not consider users' age, size, and ability. Architects are in the ideal position to embrace fundamental human rights as a compelling basis for better and fairer urban planning to create livable, inclusive, and sustainable cities for all. An accessible built environment is a better environment for everyone, whether disabled or not. Designing for diversity is simply designing for equality. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bernadette. <clears throat> now, as a pivot between our first two speakers um, with um, disability perspectives, I guess, and human rights perspectives, and our built environment speakers, um, I have a poem to read. And the poem is going to be included in the Elgar Handbook on Disability Policy 
which is being edited by Sally Robinson, Professor Sally Robinson from Flinders University, who's Professor of Disability and Com Community Inclusion there, and Professor Karen Fisher of UNSW. And within the handbook, they are looking at the impact on policy of understanding disability through a human rights framework. Now, the reason my poem is in there is because within this handbook, they have included personal narratives from people with disability about their policy experiences and the form of things like short essays, photos and illustrations and the like. And they will fit between the more traditional chapters. So the reason for that is they're seeking to um, make visible the effects of policy in the lives of people with disability. <coughs> they accepted my poem, which I found a little bit surprising. <laughs> but anyway, um, the poem is a little bit based on Allen Ginsberg's 1954 poem, which some of you may know, and that is called How. And the poem is a reflection on the Australian Standard 1428 and also a reflection on some of the aspects of my own particular illness and I'll just try and find it. <coughs> so it's titled Disabled How, AS 1428.1, 2021 and all that jazz. <laughs> Abled to disabled. Step, step go the systems, tick, tick go the performance criteria. Accessibilised design stairs, balustrated ballets for little stick people on the blue wheelchair toilet accessibility sign. Rompy ramps slammed into a ziggurated entry steps. Crazy traffic-like clicks, tactile dotted crossings, checkered metal-plated lift platforms, sanitary-chromed shower grab rails, universalised design principles, national construction code, national disability insurance scheme, plan, manage, call, back, call, centralisation, portable ramps, Australian standard 14 fucking 28.1. Disabled, too abled. Quicker if it was my body car smash than each neuron string slow snapping one by one. My 29.95 buck pharmacy stick life buoying me over each paved step and then thick and fast, the NDIS support vehicles come to the rescue. The walkers, my desert camels for those long haul mall ramps. And then with the bells ringing and dinging for supermarket raids, mobility scooting, rocking Daniel Ricardo. But the <laughs> sinews slow and sputter wire stripped on each threshold. And then riding that last wheelchair like a fucking Dalek, oxygen bottle on tap like Branson in his spacesuit, drifting assistively on urban streets, fading into a voluntary dream magic, invisible to all eyes, losing all the speeds, all the spaces, all the clicks, all the dots, like the end of time in a Tarkovsky film. Thank you so Yay. much. And I'm glad I got a few laughs, which is great. And I thought it fitted into the theme of time a little bit at the end, which Raylene mentioned. So as a segue, I know Tim is going to talk a bit about... Um, 
the code, AS1428, or as I called it, AS fucking 1428. But I'll hand it over to you. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, thanks, Peter. I I learned, you know, all of half an hour ago that I was going to follow that, and I'm, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to go, but I'll make it as dramatic as I can. So Marianne asked us to respond to um, the broad topic of disability, human rights and the built environment. And honestly, my first reaction was a pang of fear. Uh, as, as Peter mentioned, I, I attend a lot of architectural talks, but this is the first time that I've been speaking at one. And my initial thought was, well, what do I have to contribute? Uh, and I guess the answer to that is that I have been working in this space now for nearly five years, uh, first as a graduate and then as an architect at Architecture and Access. And Architecture and Access, um, many of uh, you may know if you're architects, uh, do access consulting. We also do the other thing on the label and that is architecture, um, specialising for people, uh, specialising design for people with um, disabilities. The topic, disability, human rights and the built environment, actually speaks to the heart of my interest in architecture. Uh, I didn't always see myself working in the disability space, but I have long had an interest in politics and human rights and how that intersects with the built environment. Uh, to, to misquote Jeremy Till, when you're designing, you're not just drawing a set of lines on a page, but a set of spatial and social relationships. And many things from this follows. Love follows, power follows, politics follows. So fundamentally, if a group of people do not have access to that space, then they are put at a disadvantage from these other things. Some of which have distinct quantitative values, thinking about uh, workplaces and services. But others are more qualitative, and I'm thinking about many of the things that we've missed through the extended periods of lockdown the last couple of years. Art, culture, parks, sport, nature, good food, good company, personal interaction. This trying lockdown experience that we've all shared should give us a good sense of the importance of these things in our lives and the personal impact of barriers placed upon them. Expanding that thought a little from the personal to the societal, many of these things are also shared in common in the uh, public space. And it's coming together in the public domain that is central to strengthening our bonds as a society and a community. These barriers are not always obvious. Some of them are. When so many houses have a step to get in the front door, that's pretty obvious. Or when there's no platform at the tram stop, that's also pretty obvious. It's an obvious impediment to a significant swathe of our community. And in some ways, I think those of us who have AS1428 are blessed, despite what Peter said. <laughs> the Australian standard for access to premises is enshrined in law for public building. And we can use this as a tool, not just to redesign space, but to redesign people's relationship to it and hopefully, in turn, the relationship to their community. There are, of course, nuances to disability, and the standard doesn't provide for everyone. I think this is something that I've been learning alongside my team at ANA. Addressing the needs of people with disabilities which are not physical. How do we design spaces for people with autism or other types of sensory issues, uh, genetic disorders or intellectual disabilities? This is far more complex. 
And then there's another layer of complexity when balancing the needs of other users of the building, able-bodied individuals, carers, staff, creating a safe and dignified work environment for them whilst balancing all of these needs against the typical architectural constraints. Site, budget, clients' preferences, environmental sustainability, building regulations, and heaven forbid, beauty. This is where the real complexity lies. And dare I quote Mies van der Rohe, God is in the detail. I believe all of this begins with dignity at home. Much of our work at ANA is in the domestic setting and primarily centred on pe meeting people's functional requirements, restoring a sense of dignity and providing independence. So at the bare minimum, the activities of daily living can be completed with relative ease, hopefully saving those efforts for negotiating life outside the home to contribute and share life with others. Perhaps a slight tangent, but to illustrate an important point, I had my eyes opened at a talk at Process Loop a couple of years ago when Stephanie Guest talked about um, the requirements of breastfeeding mothers in public space and how that impacted her own life. I invited Stephanie to speak at our office and what she shared was old news to many of the mothers um, in our workplace, but it was a complete revolution to me. And what this highlights, I think, is the importance of lived experience um, and valuing contributions of all members of our community through the design process. What continues to drive me is, that, is a belief that everyone should have the same rights and opportunities as I do, as an able-bodied, straight, white male. Design has a role to play in facilitating this breaking down boundaries and creating opportunities. Thanks. Thank you so much, Tim. <clears throat> All right. Hi. Oh, this is very on. Hi. Um, <laughs> my name is Simone and I'm an architect. So I'm the co-director for a small design practice called Circle Studio Architects. And I'm also undertaking a PhD looking at urban footpaths, which probably sounds incredibly dull to begin with, but I assure you they're very fascinating. And Marianne's shaking her head there. <laughs> yes, she agrees. Um, so how I go about this is by framing them as an overlooked but important public space in our cities. So I come to this topic slightly differently. Um, I'm not looking at disability specifically, but rather more broadly at our social rights to public space and equality of access. That is, who uses the footpath, in what, uh, what, in what ways and why. And why is this important? Well, they're everywhere, except for maybe leading up to here. Um, in addition to enabling pedestrian circulation through cities, footpaths are a site for everyday spatial practices, formal and informal commercial enterprise, such as street vending in some neighbourhoods, and they're also the interface between public and private realms. They are a space of representation, urban character, and the enactment of social and cultural identities. But firstly, it's important to redefine what a footpath actually is. So at a basic level, it's usually concrete paving or paving, it's between the roadbed uh, keeps people safe from traffic and there's usually a building next to it. However, footpaths are often overlooked as a public space and in their own right. Um, and often when we think about public space, we're thinking about things like beautiful gardens like this, public squares, plazas and so forth. Even though footpaths actually constitute more square meterage in cities than these traditional public spaces. Everyday life takes place here. They connect point A to point B to point C, and they facilitate mobility through the most basic mode of human transportation, walking. 
So my research looks specifically at the inner suburb of Footscray, where in the central urban area, public squares make only 1% of the physical area. Footpaths make 10%, so in comparison, even though they're overlooked, they're actually quite a lot bigger. Of course, this can vary from suburb to suburb. They are publicly owned land and heavily controlled by regulation, but their functionalities are directly impacted by the private interests of adjacent buildings and their owners. So they become quite complex. The interplay between physical space, the social conventions, the regulatory factors affect not only how footpaths are literally shaped, but the flow of activity on them, the street life. The factors that affect footpath usage is therefore complex. And when you begin to pull apart what makes a footpath function or function badly, you realise what a contested space it is. So business owners have their own commercial interests in how the front of their tenancies are used and maintained. Utility companies use them for service infrastructure, so we're all familiar with a random telephone pole like smashed in the middle of a otherwise very nice path. Um, councils may seek to beautify them. They can be a space of political protest, a space for begging, a space for hanging out, or just simply waiting for a friend. So footpaths are and should be for everyone. However, the smallest detail, a misplaced step, a poorly positioned pole, or merchandise spilling from the shop in a really haphazard way can make mobility difficult for some groups. So I conducted a lot of my research on foot. I spent a lot of time walking and documenting the streets and conducting interviews with people ranging from built environment professionals like myself, council workers and everyday users such as students, mothers and other working professionals. So while some views were common, what became evident very quickly was that the same footpath was vastly more accessible for some people than others on both a social and a physical level. Some view it as a space for social recreation, others were frustrated by the limited ways they could move across it. For some it was unsafe, but for others the activity was quite exciting. I guess I never really thought about how exclusive footpaths were until I started talking to people. The penny dropped when I was interviewing a new mother who was complaining, and for good reason, about her experience pushing a pram around in the middle of lockdown. So she was trying to navigate potholes, curbs, puddles, A-frames, and a lack of pedestrian crossing, and it all became very, very frustrating. But she, like me, never thought about it until her circumstances changed. The social importance of footpaths became really apparent during the lockdowns as well. I spoke to people who described it as being their only recreational space when they had no backyard, and footpaths became an alternative refuge from home when everything else was shut. So there are many, many different people using this very thin utilitarian place that we need, to, so that we need to examine what happens on them more deeply to understand how this area can better negotiate between the different and sometimes conflicting needs of the users. And because there is such a diverse range of people on it, we need to be careful with who gets included and who gets excluded and that certain user groups are not disadvantaged from the decisions made in design and governance. And what makes a space public is its capability to enable a wide range of users and allow for interaction between people. And footpaths do exactly that. It's important to reframe them not as just a physical space, but also a social public space where street life happens complete with all its energy, symbiosis, conflicts. And as built environment professionals, it's integral to understand these so that the people you ultimately design for are accounted for and heard, and multiple perspectives can be understood. And cities should be more inclusive of the population as much as they can. And it is hard to satisfy everyone, and that's, that is reality, but our footpaths really do need to support diversity, and we need to change a mindset in how we think about them. 
If they were more carefully considered in city design and planning, as well as by private building owners and tenants, rather than being treated as an afterthought or that kind of space that you dump things on, they could contribute even more to the quality of the urban realm. Thank you. <coughs> All right. Thanks, Yvonne. I know growing up in the outer suburbs, in some ways for me, the footpath was a space of freedom. Um, so I think we'll have a little bit of a panel discussion now before we get to Q&A from the um, audience. And we might start with Raylene. Mm -hmm. And um, Raylene, I was fascinated by your notion of um, time and, you know, this idea of fast versus slow. Do you think architects too quickly go for fast, like fast technology, fast innovations and disregard notions of slow or don't fully understand how difficult it is to get policy um, through? <clears throat> um, no, because I can appreciate that they're creative and innovative and they're drawn to new things and new concepts and new ideas. So I, I appreciate that that thinking, but I guess what the thinking has to do is not always be moving forward and thinking forward and thinking future and thinking of what currently exists and bringing what currently exists along with the future. So in terms of like built environment that still has existing inaccessibility, you know, yes, have new concepts, new, you know, um, form and function and, and differing types of, um, you know, uh, co well, concepts and, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, um, like fabrics and, and new, um, new construction ways, but you have to sort of bring along and think about what currently exists and how we're going to bring that along on the journey, I think. And I think that's a bit of a problem with the architects. They're in so much in the new environment and what's going to be happening in the future and that, and that sort of bring the past along, so to speak. Yeah, Tim and um, Yvonne, do you, do you think architects are disconnected from those policy interfaces when we start to think about new design ideas or new innovations? Um, I think yes in a lot of ways. I think, um, I mean, I work in private practice as well and I think often it's just not having the time to be aware of the things that are actually happening. So it's not until you're slapped with, you know, a list of things that you have to do that you actually start becoming aware of them. And I think it is just a pressure of, um, you know, just having too much to do in one area, not enough time to be aware but I think if that awareness was raised, then yes, it would be really beneficial to a lot of practitioners. I think, I think that's a totally fair comment. Time is like such a precious commodity and, you know, time is money is, you know, it's fact, really. Um, there's only so much we can do in any one day. Um, but it's interesting to think about time in a spatial context as well. Um, just when you were having that conversation, it made me think of um, some some interesting projects where you know architects force you to slow down um, and you might direct you on a certain path and sort of give you a different experience of time. I think that's a really interesting idea. You know, we're always looking for efficiency, but what about creating inefficiency? Um, <coughs> I think that's that's a really interesting architectural idea. But is that actually going to help anyone with mobility issues? Probably not. No. Yeah, well, I, th I think the thing that I wonder, and I think we're going to try and get to Bernadette's 
question in a second. I think I always worry that um, that push to optimization, then mm. by engineers, by architects, by whoever it is, then just erodes, um, I guess, diversity, doesn't it? Because optimization presumes that everyone is somehow the same because that's kind of quicker. So I think, um, um, you know, I think that's something that whenever I hear optimization or think efficiency, I, you know, red flags go up. So m maybe it's about a balance. Um, now, from Bernadette's talk, we were wondering from her, the question we had for her, and I'm not quite sure how we're going to do this, is we we're wondering what she thought about how architects should be educated and about human rights issues. How can we embed that into architectural education? Do we have do we have a record? We have a recording. That's a, it's a miracle. <laughs> Teaching architectural students and practitioners human rights to ensure they're designed for and with disabled people is a substantial challenge in design education today. Where it exists, human rights and universal design education remain as specialised and independent topics. The differentiated separation of disabled and non-disabled people needs to be challenged to incorporate design for equality. Effective human rights education contributes to the formation of future architects' values as architecture students need to understand human diversity at the very start of their design education. This understanding is critical to remove architectural barriers and it is crucial to be inclusive from the very beginning of the design process. Students need to find solutions for people, not just complying with rules and regulations, and that understanding the feelings and needs of users should form an essential part of the design of the built environment. Human rights and universal design education needs to be implemented as modules and workshops mainstreamed as a fundamental component of each subject and integrated into coursework and curricula. The human rights education must be continued into built environment practice. A change of mindset of built environment stakeholders needs to occur and human rights needs to be on their agenda through continuing professional development modules and workshops. All architects need to develop the critical skills and competencies to design for everyone to ensure all people can exercise their rights. Bernadette, thank you so much. I know you're over there and I know it's eight o'clock in the morning, I think, or thereabouts where you are. Um, I think, sorry to throw it on to you, Tim and Yvonne, but you went to architecture school much more recently than many of us here. Yvonne taught me. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so that, that means you're next. Um, so, Tim, what, what do you think about how we might go about incorporating human rights into the curricula of architecture school? Is it just about having one subject or, as Bernadette suggests, is it something that we should think about across a whole range of subjects? It's a great question. Um, I, I think probably the latter is where I'm leaning. I think the designs, you know, all my experience at least um, studying architecture at Monash was there is a significant bias and leaning on the design studio. So there's certainly opportunities there for um, design studios which are you know, dealing with these sort of issues to, um, I, I guess, really open people's eyes to them whilst they're still in the academy. Um, but 
naturally that's only going to um, do that for the people who are doing that studio. So, you know, perhaps there is space for um, some, some, some sort of subject around, um, you know, the, those sort of fundamental principles around um, human rights and also, I guess, the, the standards and um, uh, codes that we have to deal with as an architect. I don't really remember thinking about them at all at, a, at university and then suddenly you land in practice and you go, oh, I've got to tick this box and this box and this box and this box. And then, and that's, I guess, you know, that kind of circles back to that conversation around time and AS1428. You know, you're ticking the box and you've got to remember in the end you're not designing for boxes, you're designing for people and everyone's different. And I, I think, um, you know, someone might be able to correct me, but AS1428 is designed for the 80th percentile. So... 80% of people with a disability, you know, should be catered for um, by AS1428. Well, what happens to the other 20%? You know, we should be looking at AS1428 perhaps as a benchmark and then thinking about how can we exceed that and design a better outcome. And I guess for us working, um, you know, we do a lot of work for uh, people modifying their homes if they've had a workplace accident or a car accident and we're constantly having to remind ourselves that this is an individual who has personal requirements that may not be that AS1428 um, standard. Very well said. Um, Tim, Yvonne, do you want to add anything to that before? And then we'll go to Raylene after this. I think um, I have noticed a shift over the past few years. I've, so I've taught quite a while, over a decade now, and I have noticed a shift <laughs> since when I graduated, which was all about form and like grass... Well, actually, it wasn't even on Grasshopper, but like form and curves and stuff to things that are a lot more socially minded and I have noticed in the mix to be a lot more um, studios that were looking at um, rights, um, rights to public space um, and just really interesting issues that um, really focus more about the humanity of um, or how architecture to re could respond to humanity. And I think, uh, you know, when I went through there was a huge, um, also another huge focus on um, environmentally sustainable design and that was something that was really being pushed in a lot of um, classes. But I feel maybe it's now about time that we started to put more of the um, aspects around social rights into the curriculum as much as we did with um, ESD, because it's just as important, um, if not more, well, it's just as important. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, that's all right. I was just going to say, um, I'll try and be a bit more articulate this time. Like in terms of um, policy and standards, I think the problem that occurs, which Tim sort of just alluded to, is they can become a minimum rather than best practice or something creative or something innovative. So you speak to builders often and they just say, well, we build to the standard and the guidelines and that's what's there and that's what we build to. And, you know, uh, if it's not there, we're not going to build it. So, you know, there's, it can be problematic if we just live in a sort of a standards policy world. Obviously, there has to be a minimum. We want improvement, but that doesn't allow a lot of scope for um, forward thinking and creative space. And... The other, the other sort of part of the um, argument is something Bernadette mentioned in her speech, and she said that the it's been you know 60 years or something since the first piece of legislation came through in the U.S. And in the U.S., they have um, a more legalised framework in relation to the built environment. And if a shop has a step at the front, um, you can just sue the owners, and they have to provide access, and they get sued. And we don't, we haven't moved anywhere near that in terms of you know our policy structures in Australia, and so that you know, discrimination continues to exist and there's sort of no, you know, forced change or action for the owners of those shops that have a, you know, they trade, they're trading and creating 
um, an economic environment which has a discriminatory element and there's no repercussions about that. You know, um, and it just, you know, the society just seems to accept that that's a bit discriminatory, but you know, that's what it is. And, you know, I've spoken to the shop owners and said, you know, are you ever going to build a ramp in this shop, you know, so I can get in? And they're like, oh, well, you know, that's $5,000 and I've got to pay the kids' school fees or I've got, you know, I want to go on a holiday to Fiji next year and, and no one provides me any tax... In like, there are mechanisms to do it. There's tax incentives or there's... Local council could provide some incentives or, you know, there are mechanisms to produce this change or you bring in a legal framework that they get sued if they don't. So um, in terms of time and creating change in the policy frameworks, I think we need to do a bit of work in thinking um, how we get those policies and the standards and guidelines to work a bit harder for people with a disability. I had one other question for you, Raylene, mm -hmm. and I know you're a great advocate for people with um, disabilities and also very interested in your background in sociology. How, how do you think architects can be real or better allies to people with disabilities? Mm, well, I think just, you know, attending seminars and forums like this where you get um, wide and real understanding of the human condition and the diversity of the human condition mm. and, and gaining understanding of that. And I guess if you're a young, you know, teenager and you've just hit university and your world hasn't been exposed to disability or difference or any form of diversity, you're sort of, you know, growing up in sort of a narrow field. So I guess it's just a, um, there's just a need for, you know, students of, of architecture and um, practices of architecture that are already qualified to, um, you know, be educating themselves and thinking about the, the wider, you know, society and the diversity that exists in society and you know, I'm all for beauty and amazing form and, you know, futuristic structures, but, you know, I just want to be able to get in them myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we might throw it over to the audience at that um, particular point. Now, we have the central mic for people who want to go up and um, ask panel questions or make comments. Um but we also have the portable mic for those of you who may not be able to um, get to the central um, mic. And then we'll take some audience questions. And then at the end, we've got another surprise guest who, Erin um, Wilson, who will sort of sum up the whole um, discussion. So are there any um, questions from the audience? Oh, thank you. Hi, everyone. My name's Catherine. Um, I've come to a number of forums where architects, urban planners, etc., speak. I was lucky enough to do some subjects out of the Masters of Ageing program at Melbourne Uni when he existed, and one of them was Design for Ageing. And it seems to me that the thing that I always bring into the conversation is... Whatever happened to transdisciplinarity, not interdisciplinary thinking, but I trained as a physiotherapist many years ago, and part of the concept of being a health professional who is actually working with the physical body and getting it moving again, whatever reason it's not moving or accepting the movement limitations that it has, is a body exists within an environment, whether it's built or social or any other, and it seems to me that whenever we have this paucity of disciplines looking from only a disciplinarity, 
that we miss that nuance, the understanding of you know, what it's like to work with someone with cystic fibrosis, um, to work with someone who has a temporarily broken leg. It appears to me that, that in this conversation, the thing that is missing is that understanding, not just from the individual's point of view, but from that whole discipline of getting architects, built environment, etc., thinking in a way that is cellogenic, holistic. And I think, I wonder whether that, is a comment that people would like to speak to. Catherine, that is such a great comment and question. And I think um, transdisciplinarity is certainly something that maybe it's not so encouraged in our universities and um, architecture schools. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot, <laughs> but um, Tim, I think maybe rather than talking about it in terms of architectural education, which we've sort of done a little bit of. Um, and I could talk about transdisciplinary research at Norsium. What about in practice, in your practice at Access? Um, how do you manage those things? Is, is transdisciplinarity a sort of factor? Do you get together with the physios? Do you get together with the occupational therapists? And is that experience something that you think you could have learnt about before? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we do, uh, particularly in the home modifications environment uh, when we're working either in the NDIS system, WorkSafe or TAC. Um, that is actually an OT-led system. So um, we, yeah, we are often working with OTs and that can be a really rewarding experience um, when you're both on site together with the client and you're working out the best way to solve a problem. Um, sometimes it's great like that when you're all there in one place. I think that's when it's at its best. And sometimes it's um, not what it could be uh, when you're kind of interpreting the OT's prescription through a report and you don't actually have that experience one-on-one -on -one in the same environment. Um, I think the frameworks also are maybe set up so that you kind of have to stay in your lanes a bit um, and people, different people are responsible for different things. So it's possibly not what it could be. But as I say, there, the opportunities when it works really well are really rewarding and they, I'm, I'm sure, give um, the, the best results when you've got, you know, the individual, the OT um, and the architect um, all involved at the same time. Yvonne, do you think we're too narrow in our practices? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in my day-to-day -day nine to five, I, I talk to engineers and I talk to energy consultants and I talk to, you know, building surveyors. There's very little kind of branching out onto other sort of not built environment disciplines. Um, in my PhD, I started off having a supervisor in urban design and everyone got really excited because it was like, oh my God, it's transdisciplinary. I'm like, it's kind of the same thing. But anyway, so I think... Um, I think there is, so, there is so much opportunity to be, there's so much to learn from these other disciplines and maybe it's our fault for not making the space to um, have better connections. I know some researchers, uh, a friend of mine, um, Anthony from Bloxus, who is doing some really amazing research with um, people with, uh, I think, uh, mental disability or just pe people with um, sensory um, differences and he sort of does his research across a lot of... Um, disciplines with health and um, I, I'm 
butchering what he actually does. So maybe just look it up. Um, but so there is stuff happening, but it is a lot harder to do um, from, a, from an academic perspective as well, because often the structure that you're trying to write your research papers are is different. Um, you know, what I would do in architecture would be different to what social science does, even though the material that I'm drawing from is a lot drawn from social science. So it does make it a little bit... It just makes everything more difficult. And I, I think that in itself is a bit of a barrier. Can I just quickly make another comment on the, the larger scale projects that architecture and access work on? We're often um, working with the access consultants in our office. So that's one of the nice um, transdisciplinary things about working in a, a company that does access consulting and architecture is you do have people in the same office. We may actually be on the other sides of the office, but you can, you can always walk across through the kitchen, grab a coffee on the way and, and have a, sit down, have a detailed conversation with someone else about how you're going to solve a problem. If you can't tick that AS1428 box, how do you find a good solution that's going to provide a good outcome for people? Raylene, what's your view on transdisciplinarity? Well, similar to what we heard, I think if you have a disability or you move into the aged care space, your world becomes transdisciplinary. So I'm, this is one of the disciplines I work in, like built environment, but it's not that environment that I work in. Mm. So in any couple of months, we would work across public transport standards, we would work across employment for people with a disability, can they get into buildings where they're working and you know accessibility requirements in the workplace. We would work across education and how people um, have um, aids and assistance in the education space and we work across health. So. You know, Asian disability is just transdisciplinary by nature and built environment for us is just one of the components of, that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so, you know, um, universal access to us, um, you know what I mean? It's just one element of the day that can be made, um, done well, and there can be universal access. That's just sort of one less thing we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in, in managing and, um, and dealing with a disability. And, you know, when things are done right, life's much easier and you can cope with difference and you can cope with the disability. Me being in a wheelchair isn't my big issue. You know, if I can't get into a building, that's an issue. But me just being in a, in a wheelchair isn't the issue. So universal design creates the space and creates movement. And then you can sort of have a very good quality of your life and enjoy life and be engaged in life um, when these things are met and criteria are dealt with and, and, and put on the agenda. Um, Catherine, I hope that yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I, think the, I think the further question is, um, you know, have we become too specialised? Because I know that um, certainly when I did learn architecture in the dark ages, five million years ago, that we were told or we were taught to be sort of generalists, to know a little bit about everything and then to sort of put those things together. Um, I think there's another question question floating around? Tonya. Oh, hello. Hi. Um, my name's Tonya. This is a question for individual, all of you on the panel. Um, I'm interested in really good examples of inclusive environments. And mm -hmm. so um, if, you were, if you were writing a book on, uh, in 2022, mm. um, in uh, inspiring inclusive environments of Melbourne, what would you include? I haven't been let out of the house in like two yeah. years. I can't <laughs> okay, if you were doing that in 2019. Uh, <laughs> hmm. Should have been given that question on a notice. 
Yeah, we should. Okay, have we can come on. back to we that. You can think in the background. I think from my I'll have a go at it. I'll jump in. From my perspective, I think my and mean now that my I'm disabled, um, and maybe Raylene might agree. My life is spent trying to negotiate things. Like it's spent trying to work out where I can go and where I can't go, what what steps I can like where there's steps, you know. So I think in a way that kind of forecloses me or precludes me thinking about those ideal utopian environments mm. where everything's just flat <laughs> and there are no steps and I can just go really fast on, um, on, on this thing. And, you know... Even the other day, I went over the road to um, see the Chanel exhibition at the um, at the gallery, and I thought, oh yeah, that's going to be great. And last time I went to an exhibition there was fantastic because you know I know that when I'm in there, everything's flat and I can move around. And last time I could look up at the art on the walls and get a bit of distance, but the problem was it was flat but the displays were a nightmare for me because all the interpretive signs were down the bottom. So I had to drive my scooter up, look down like this, and then the rest of Melbourne was looking over my shoulder and trying to, you know, I don't know, like I was in their way or something. Like, (laughs) it was not good. So I think, um, I don't know what you... You might want to add to that. Yeah, um... Should we go out and blow up a few of these shop front steps? <laughs> I mean, Extinction Rebellion, well, you know. Yeah. No, no. I'm trying to think of a good example related to my talk, and I think one is the State Library in Australia, um, in Swanson Street down the road. So it's a good example of it's an old building, but they've restructured it well, and it has a lot of disability um, provisions inside the building as well, and the staff are really good, they've, and they make it known that if you need any help, come and see them. They've got desks that go up and, you know, that move to become adjustable. So I think that would be one example of, you know, an old building that they've created a very good accessible space in and they've got quiet spaces and they've got, you know, different hearing loop sort of accessibility things and their data systems are quite accessible to people with a disability. So trying to be (laughs) one positive example, I would say probably that conversion has been very good. See, this is why lived experience is so important because you two are noticing these things constantly. Mm. And, you know, I, now that I work in this space, I'm constantly ta- walking around taking photos of cool ramps and nice little mm. details, but it's obviously still not quite as integral to my being in the world as it is for both of you. Tim, it's all about the step. <laughs> <laughs> I do love steps. I spend, I spend my life looking on Google Earth to see if there... And, you know, it's Google Street View to see if there's steps. Is there an app for that? There should be. You think there should I, be, I like a disabled step I'm app, pretty, maybe. There was some, I'm pretty sure there was a step that someone tried to do a mapping of, like, venues that you could enter into without... Yeah. I, I, obviously not in Melbourne, and I don't know where it is. Um, I don't know if you want to add anything more to that. Look, I um, haven't really thought about having to navigate steps, but I guess the only, what well, one of the spaces that comes to mind is that little garden um, at the back of NGV. Um, again, not knowing um, about the step issue, 
But um, I like it because it's free and it's accessible to everyone because you have to pay to get in there. And I think that is something to be um, commended for because it's a public building. Um, it's surrounded by very beautiful things, but it's not excluding anyone just because they can't, you know, give them an entry fee or something like that. And I think there needs to be more spaces like that in the city. And more footpaths, indeed. <laughs> and, and those. And we would say footpaths without steps and footpaths as a space of... Um, Liberation and freedom, really, I think is probably what we'd, what we'd want to see um, for everyone. Now, are there any more? Oh, look at that. Have we I got time? What's one over here at the front. I think we've got time for a couple of more. Yep. Hmm? Him. Thank you. In the black. Uh, I just had a more of a a comment than a question. Going back to Raylene's idea of time, I think um, anyone who works in uh, design and, uh, and building of the built environment would, um, it'd be great for them to understand that when you're designing spaces, it's not only physical access that you're providing when you, when you put this in place, you're actually giving us time back. If I don't have to think about those things and use Street View, <clears throat> if I don't have to spend 10 minutes getting in and out of a car, because if you have a disability, particularly a mobility issue, then you've already had time taken away from you. You know, you may have a routine that you, you have to stick to and, and your time is very precious. So if you can design a space that we don't have to think and we're, we have that confidence when we leave the house that it's going to be okay, you're actually giving us time back and that's really valuable. I love it. Thank yeah, you so much. Fantastic comment. <laughs> All right. I think, is there one more? I think we've got, I think Rob's been waiting a while. Thank you. Um, my, my question is really around the word advocacy in our roles, um, building things, designing things. And I've been involved in, I guess, large railway and airport infrastructure as well as public um, and community infrastructure. I think it's our role, isn't it, to consider all the users and for any space that we're involved in, I've discovered through, and, and I think the statistics prove that, you know, at least we'll, we'll be disabled at least at some stage in our life. And I've been, I've had my back broken twice and at one stage I was in a wheelchair travelling around and actually advocating for our design, which included use, of course, of the wheelchair, getting on and off airplanes and all that sort of thing, as many of you know, is such an excruciating experience and that loss of time is something you just can never get back. But we need to advocate to our engineers, to the transport um, planners and engineers that we're connecting our buildings to, as well as all the structures and opportunities within the building we need to design for children and aged. We need to design for the full gamut of human of what it means to be human. But, and it's our role, I think, to advocate it, you know, to all the professionals that we're engaged in about that because we're leading the design process. But a question to everyone is, how, how do we all get on board in, in, with this advocacy? Because I think we're in this situation, you know, of acknowledging our humanity, the full dimensions of our humanity. And I think um, from these wonderful discussions that you've led today, um, how do we make it... How do, we, how do we actually up the volume? And we've got a new Australian of the year who's right on the case. How do we get behind that together? 
as a community and really make a difference. I mean, it's, it's we've been waiting a long time and the time, I think, um, has actually benefits everybody because what we're talking about is everyone's safety and everyone's better connection and, you know, living more, you know, just better lives in our community, being able to be more socially engaged with the ecology of spaces that we are inventing around us. So how, well, do we, how, do we, how are we better advocates? How do we become better I advocates? I think, Rob, that's a challenge to all of us and I, th I think I would say, um, Raylene, you're my role model advocate. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think your work is fantastic. Um, do you yeah, want to add a bit yeah, to that? Yeah, I was just going to add, like, I would say, though, as a society, I think we've only, we've only had that knowledge for maybe five or ten years. I think, we've, like, we're only getting on board with the ecological, you know, interaction sort of type thinking and sort of the idea of um, awareness and accessibility of disabilities only just something coming on the agenda. Like, we've only got, you know, Dylan Alcott as the, you know, Australian of the Year finally in 2022, you know, someone with a, an obvious disability anyway. Um, so I think it takes time for society to move and to gain understanding and to become aware of what the issues are. And like at the start of my talk, I mentioned that, you know, people with a disability, intellectual and physical, were institutionalised until the 1980s in Australia. So we have to know where we've come from so we can know where we're going. Um, and as a, as a collective society, I think we're just engaging and bringing those ideas of universal, universality just on board now. So I think we've got the opportunity now to play catch up and to, and to fix a lot of those things like, you know, inaccessible built environments still and um, better inclusion of all people with disabilities. So I think now we've got that awareness. It's time we sort of make that action happen. Thank you. One more question and then we'll go to Erin and I'll, I'll introduce you briefly. That's all right. It's not a question, it's more of reflection. Uh, and from a young architect's point of view, working in an access consultancy space, research, etc. Um, I think as architects, we need to stop looking at people with disability as we need to know about their medical condition. We need to know, understand more about their experiences. Um, and there are various overlaps. Uh, you, both Peter and Raylene, have spoken about quiet spaces in galleries, and that's something a person with intellectual disability would also prefer. So I think we need to be a little less scared. We are working in Hobart <coughs> space, NDIS space. I have no idea what about the medical condition people have because I'm just interested in what their experience is within the mm. spatial. So I think we need to be a little less scared in understanding and asking about the experiences rather than, yeah. And I think that's really interesting. And I should say, I do have a PhD student, um, Panita Thakur, who is looking at um, urban happiness for wheelchair um, users. And I was part of her pilot study and she strapped onto my head a GoPro and also an empatica watch. So interestingly, I think her work is about trying to bridge that gap between qualitative experience or the emotional experiences of people who are disabled and also a whole lot of other things to do with urban design in the city. So hopefully we'll hear more of her in future years. So our discussant tonight, Professor Erin Wilson, 
holds the uniting chair in community services innovation, which is part of a research collaboration between the Centre for Social Impact at Swinburne and Uniting Vic Tasmania. Is that right, Erin? Yep. And you're passionate about social change. You'll be coming out with us to blow up those steps. And you have a special interest in community services, innovation, outcomes measurement, disability and inclusion. Thank you, Erin. Thanks, and Peter. And you've all done my work for me, so it's fantastic. I can be really quick because you've covered everything I was going to speak about, which is on the front. So I'm just going to pick up on a few themes on the back. So thanks for that. <coughs> I think that some of the things that are coming out are, you know, so interesting. But there's some stuff about, you know, I think Freud, I think it was Freud who said to us that we need to focus on making the invisible visible. And I think we've done a bit of that tonight in that you know, really one of the first sort of things to think about is is actually realising that the environment is built and what parts of the environment are built. So, you know, I think Yvonne's point about the footpaths is a classic one. These are things we never think about. Of course, wheelchair users think about them all the time and I've done lots of research about that aspect of it. But for most of us, we never think about that. They're just there. They're just assumed parts of the environment, as is the step at the fish and chip shop that's been there for decades and will be there for decades mm. more. So first of all, it's taking the blinkers off about that. And then I think the other thing that we've been all talking about is this notion of, you know, who are we designing for and what's the sort of default position? And I, I really like this quote, which goes back to that um, 2008 VCOS push for the universal housing standards that um, Raylene mentioned. And in their report, they quoted a um, UK politician who said, um, are you male, fit and aged between 18 and 40, not very tall, nor very short? Do you have good sight, good hearing? Are you right-handed? If you are, then you're part of 18% of the British population for whom houses are designed. The rest of the 82% of the population <coughs> tolerate what is forced upon them by the, in, in inverted commas, average house buyer. And I think that's absolutely the point, that we're somehow there's this default position that, you know, who, who are these people we're designing for? So we've been sort of setting up this competition in a way of, of, of human rights around you know, somehow, you know, some people have to miss out because other people have to get something. And I, I just really want to challenge that assumption. I, I just don't think that that is the nature of our population. We actually are a population of very diverse people. Um, so we're actually not this group of 18 to 40 right-handed men who are of a certain height, for instance. Or if we are, then, you know, in some ways you might be a minority because there are other minorities all around you and we make up a diverse population. So I think, it, you know, these are the conversations we've been having. And I, I really want to take up um, Tim's thoughts, I think, around kind of intentional design that to get away from the afterthought. So again, it's this kind of default position that we're pushed into, I think, Peter, you talked at sort of the optimization, you know, mentality and, you know, Tim talked about the, the afterthought. If we can bring much of that into the, the rigour of our design, really challenging the assumptions and unconscious bias that we hold in these default settings that we keep going to um, and bringing them forward which comes to that impetus for change that many of you have started to talk about. What is it that we need that's going to get us there, you know, to speed up this, this process? And you know, I think there's some really nice images that have been brought to the fore um, alongside things like trans, transdisciplinarity as well. 
um, so I like the image of um, the lockdown exclusion. And is that something that is that we can all share? We have all been excluded by lockdown. What does it feel like when we lose these aspects of our life through the built environment that are really qualitatively, essentially important to who we are? Is there an impetus that we can seize before it dissipates? And the other impetus I quite like was the transdisciplinarity issue of um, not staying in your lane. So I'm trying to think, what's the other image that's not staying in your lane? Is it getting all in the same car? I don't know what it is, but there's something about the collaborative um, energy and problem solving and knowledge sharing that comes that we, we need to somehow seize in this moment. So I think those are the things I take away along with returning to our theme of human rights. So, you know, we do have obligations under human rights instruments. We are duty bearers. We have a duty to each other in the way we design our world. So I think that's, that's one of the, the great obligations that are put on us. And in thinking about that, I just want to leave you with that image of Raylene's Fish and Chip Shop. 25 <laughs> years hence, oh, and right. that damn step <laughs> is still there, and all of us will be 25 years older, and none of us can get in a door in 25 years' time either. And think of all the people who haven't been able to get in in that time. And I know, I almost know for a fact that step's going to be there. So, you know, we, that's the challenge, is, is how do we hasten the change, I think? How do we you put the pedal to the metal? So I'll leave that with you. Thank you so much, Erin. And I think um, Marianne Jackson will finish, but I think thank you to Bernadette, thank you to Raylene, thank you to um, Yvonne and Tim, and I'll leave the final words to you, Marianne. My final words are basically, thank you all for coming. And we hope that you've enjoyed this very much. Thank you to all of the people that accepted my invitation to be part of this show. Um, as I said, we've got some um, QR codes here that if you want to access that, you can leave us some comments. If you want to get in touch with us in any way in the future, um, website, social media, whatever. I think we've got some things set up today that you can actually contact us by. Yep, we've got some more functionality in our um, website and, and the QR code. Right, okay, we've got the QR code. Contact <laughs> us through that. And once again, thank you to the M Pavilion people for organising this and being able to facilitate all of the, the sound, etc. And Bernadette, thank you so much for being here. Um, and as I, said, as I said, thank you all for coming. And enjoy the Thank night. you, you've been a great audience. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>